Coming home. That's what consumers and companies did the world over in 2020, both making huge investments in time, money, and directional effort for an everything-at-home scramble. Work, school, commerce, entertainment, health, nothing short of the backbones of everyday life. They all came home, but just because we could do it doesn't mean we necessarily should in the long haul. And are we even doing it right? Shifting behaviors into the home thanks to technology is, of course, nothing new. But before the pandemic, only the most ambitious futurists would have put their name to what happened in 2020. Gyms became watches or mirrors. Restaurants came in bags. Offices became postage stamp faces with odd backgrounds. But we moved from 5% work hours at home to 40%, according to Stanford economist Nicholas Bloom. The dining room table, that's now a school. And the doctor is in your hand. Just 15% of us had used telehealth before 2020, but that grew to 41% during the pandemic, according to Parks Associates. And we're still trying to master mute. But all of this was done with a viral gun to our heads that can mask what's really working in the home and perhaps what really isn't. Ask frazzled parents how simultaneous work and school from home are working out. Healthcare providers never signed up to be tech support for their patients' connected devices. Web meetings may sustain existing relationships, but can you really make new ones in a Hollywood Squares interface? And we still want to feel the avocados. Let's explore what really works at home and how it works best. To sort this out is my dream team. Jennifer Kent is Senior Director at Parks Associates in Dallas. Paul Lee is Global Head of Research for Tech, Media, and Telecom at Deloitte in London. And my colleague, Megan Wallerton, is in Louisville, Kentucky, where she's Senior Editor at our CNET Smart Home Center. And I want to start, guys, not with what's working, because that's sort of the obvious question. I think we all know that from experience. What's not working out there? So what we can't do with current technology is those spontaneous conversations um, those elevator pitches, um, those chats uh, as we walk along, uh, say, to the cafeteria um, or sharing a cab home. There is no digital equivalent of that as far as I can see. So Zoom and other products like that are fantastic for the um, meeting room replication. But you know, the reality is business is about more than just the boardroom. Jennifer, you guys do a lot of research about what people are doing and thinking about doing. What do you think is kind of a squeaky wheel that's not turning smoothly? For me, the thing that I don't think is really going to stick after the pandemic is actually remote learning. You know, there's a, there's a lot of interesting companies doing innovative things here, a lot of investments from the school districts in technology, and that's great. But when you're looking at K through 12, I, I don't know that it really works for the students. Are The reality of, of work and the reality of school aren't quite aligned for, for long-term remote learning at school. I think kids generally benefit from the socialization. Um, while, while a lot of this investment is likely to pay it forward to more technology being incorporated into curricula in the classroom, um, I, I really don't know that remote schooling is, is going to stick long term. Yeah, I hear that pain point a lot, that one. And uh, I think second, right behind it, I hear from a number of parties that health is also it works, but there's a lot that you can miss. What do you guys see in that area in terms of it being difficult? 
I think that the big gap right now is the fact that while video-based consultation services are, are here and the technology is here and there's much greater usage this year than ever before, the connected device ecosystem is still relatively immature. So there's not a wide adoption of connected health devices at home and those that have, let's say a connected blood pressure cuff or a connected weight scale or a smart thermometer, that data is not integrated with telehealth services. So while I'm actually very bullish on telehealth long-term, there's a major pain point in this gap between the vital science and the data that you can pick up from devices just really not being out in the market and the services, which we've seen an incredible increase in growth in this year. Okay, Megan, let's talk about what's happening in the smart home. A lot of people look at this revolution of become, becoming home-centric, these millions of hours of home that didn't exist before. Homes sat there empty much of the time. Now we're in them all the time, and they think this is going to be this incredible explosion of smart home adoption. But what are you really seeing out there? It's been a real challenge for a lot of people trying to adapt to this time. Obviously, being at home, there's a big proliferation of smart home devices, which has been incredible. But what I'm increasingly hearing from our readers is that the devices they're buying, while they're amazing and they help save a little bit of time, they're not actually touching on those big pain points, which are the chores, you know, the cooking, the cleaning, the laundry, the stuff that really contributes to the bigger challenge of that work-life balance that we're all struggling with right now. So while security cameras and thermostats and voice assistants are incredible devices that can save time and money and energy and, and help you monitor your home safely, it really isn't addressing the bigger problems that people are having right now. Adoption of smart home, uh, Parks Associates data, the most recent I've seen, Jennifer, let's say, let's be generous and say 30% of homes have some smart home tech. Is that about right? Yeah, that's about right. Actually, maybe even a, a hair lower than that. Um, have at least one smart home device in, in the household, but for a lot of individual products, adoption has just crept up in minor, minor ways. You know, smart thermostats, I think, are about 15% adoption right now after being on the market for 10 years. Um, and one smart home device does not make a smart home, of course, right? That being said, um, we have seen a lot of growth actually in peace of mind and premise security devices this year. You know, beyond the pandemic, there was a lot of social conflict um, that happened this year. And that does raise people's concerns and, and, and makes them uneasy in certain ways. And so that actually results in a lot of buying towards peace of mind type devices, video doorbells, smart door locks, monitoring cameras. The players that have done the best job at actually automating in a holistic way in the home are actually the residential security providers because it is a system-based approach. Um, and so in that sense, you know, there's a, a minor step forward for whole home automation. I believe one of the, the big drivers there is the dropping in prices of some of these devices and bigger systems, right? Where, you know, maybe a single standalone camera from Nest or before that drop cam was 200 bucks and some people could afford it, but the majority of people were not sure if they could, especially if they wanted multiple cameras and wanted to get different angles around their homes. But now there's devices like that that are only 20 bucks or 30 bucks that are much more attainable for, for the broader audience. And I think that's, that's definitely contributed and been great to see. To Jennifer's point, having one or two smart home devices does not a smart home make. Uh, you need to get an awful lot of devices and get them working together to really say my home is now a smart thing, as opposed to a container that has a few smart things in it. 
Do you have anything in your observation this year that you think is going to inspire people from the 2020 experience to say, ah, now I see that it's got to be a cohesive bunch of devices, or has this not advanced that? Oh, gosh, that's such a great question. I think I think aspirationally, in theory, yes, this year has definitely been an indicator of, okay, we have a lot of ground to cover still. We have great devices. We're making a lot of progress. But that whole home automation, that whole smart home thing isn't really a reality yet. And I've definitely heard from our readers. They're hoping for something that's more whole home oriented that really, like I said before, addresses those pain points with cooking, cleaning, laundry, the stuff that really takes the majority of the time. And that's something I'll be looking at as a trend. I don't expect to see, you know, robots like Rosie from the Jetsons anytime soon proliferating in our homes, although that'd be great. But um, something that's maybe slightly moving that needle would be wonderful. And I'll definitely be looking for that. Now, Paul, you've got technology, media and telecoms in your bucket. No small scope there. Uh, We're talking about devices in the home and something that's very kind of internally home centric. Give us a view of what you think is going to be a great growth area in terms of services and platforms that may be outside the home. What about telecom, for example? What about media services? When we look at um, the smart home, one of the areas we include within there is entertainment. And the device which has grown really fast in terms of um, connectivity and smartness within the home is the television. Uh, And adoption of smart TVs has really, really surged. And it's because what has happened is we've taken an everyday object. So most people watch television every day and made it better. And I think that is the key. So if you take something which is every single day and uh, iterate it, you know, you upgrade the every day through connectivity, through processing power, then you have a hit. And I think a lot of what we call smart entertainment so far, as with smart home, is frankly connected entertainment and connected home. Anything you would look for that will bring us to what is truly smart? We often think about TVs just being connected, but the reality is um, you get things like, um, say, cortical processes developed initially for smartphones or even optical and then dropped into TVs. So you get a much better user interface as a result. You get slicker moving between apps. So rather than this being a tortuous, arduous experience, it's great. Let me take a turn here and talk about um, 5G, which people don't think of as a home technology. They think of it as mobile because that's what the G's have always meant to us, right? But we know that the carriers would like to see 5G become at least as much of a home and premise delivery pipeline. Have you seen anything that is going to give us an appetite as consumers to think more about 5G as a home technology? Um, I think it definitely will happen, and it will be an evolution of 4G to the home. So the great thing about 5G for the carriers is it reduces the cost per gigabyte carried. And there are some breakthroughs happening in some markets like Japan, where um, the introduction of 5G has meant that the cost per gigabyte has fallen um, quite a bit, both for the carrier and also for the consumer, and demand rockets up as a result. So in many markets, average usage of mobile will be, say, three or four gigabytes. The introduction of 5G by one carrier in uh, Japan has led to about 30 gigabytes per month. When we get to 100, then we're starting to move to the point where you think, okay, this can become more mainstream. I would say that there are definitely pain points of connectivity in the home. Different people are having widely different experiences uh, at home with all of the demands on their home networks. 
there is simply a reality that in many places in the United States, internet service providers do have an, a, a monopoly, essentially. Um, I know I'm not going to disclose where I live, but I'm chomping at the bit for 5G at home in my area to circumvent my local monopoly and have more choice, um, which will force better service and more investment in my area, right? I think that there um, will be a lot of demand for that, but the, the proof is also in the pudding. People will expect wired to be higher quality than wireless. And so the carriers really do have to prove that 5G can stand up and can compete against wired broadband. Megan, what do you think about the promise of 5G in the home versus our current mesh of Wi-Fi and Zigbee and Z-Wave and sometimes hubs and that kind of basket of stuff? Yes, uh, it's a very good point. There's so much protocol confusion, right, that we need to kind of consolidate it and find a new way. And I'm, I'm really excited about the possibility of 5G, particularly with home security products, right? So there's, there's some available now. Arlo has uh, a 4G camera called the Arlo Go, but this, this type of device uh, is a little clunky right now. I'm looking forward to the upgrade that would allow people to really have security devices or, or mobile backup if their Wi-Fi cuts out or primarily use mobile as an option if they have property, they live out in, in a farmland sort of scenario where they need to protect the perimeter of their home and they don't have the ability to have a Wi-Fi connection at hand. I think it's a it's a really, really wonderful alternative and, and an area that hasn't seen much development yet, especially in the, the DIY product space where you can, you know, buy something online and, and set it up yourself. Personally, I would love to see us get past this era of bridging everything through Wi-Fi. I just find it to be, a, it was a great technology when it first arose, 90s, early 2000s. It was magic. But to me, it just seems like this thing in the way now, as opposed to smart home products that should in the future home run to the internet instead of making a step through Wi-Fi and or a hub, right? Absolutely. It's 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 definitely a pain point. And, and one of the things we have to say now, because this is how it is with the different protocols available, is you have to really start with a solid Wi-Fi connection. If you don't have one, you need a range extender for that battery powered doorbell or your wired doorbell to work or anything that would be likely going usually around the perimeter of your house or beyond. And and with this this new technology, we might be able to change that. And that opens up some really, really exciting possibilities. Let's move on now to, uh, to health. Uh, the telehealth market is one where, as we mentioned a little earlier with some of your data, Jennifer, uh, is it's exciting because it allows us to have the most convenient access to healthcare and therefore more frequent engagements with it, which is, that's kind of holy grail stuff in the medical space. But at the same time, um, a lot of folks will still look at uh, telehealth from their home and not be sure that it's the real deal or that it's as good as going to a clinic. Our data has, has long shown a bias for sure among consumers and especially older consumers towards in-person healthcare, right? That that care that you receive virtually couldn't possibly be as good as what you receive in the doctor's office and not just any doctor, but my doctor who knows me and, and sees me. Uh, for the first time in the pandemic, we did see a use case arise that challenges that. So um, the idea that actually going to the office could expose me to getting sick or I could be exposing others. And so in that way, care from home is actually pre preferable, right, for that specific use case. Um, so that's an interesting shift in mindset for consumers. Also, we saw a big shift in mindset among providers who have been pretty resistant to how could I possibly treat my patients this way, have been forced into it. 
and now see, oh, there are actually a lot of things that I've, I've been able to treat my patients remotely. When I think of um, health at home, uh, the word telehealth, I think, is very instructive because the majority of virtual visits that have taken place in 2020 have been over the telephone. And the reason why that works is because the telephone is a common denominator. It's a technology that's been around for decades. The people who tend to need healthcare most are more elderly, so in their 60s, 70s and 80s. And the telephone is familiar. Using video is much harder because video is not homogenous. So video can be a fantastic experience with really great cameras and really great lighting, but it can also be a very mediocre experience with mediocre devices, poor quality lenses, um, etc. So for the medical profession, having a standard way of communicating helps and having um, a piece of technology which doesn't make the patient get more worried um, is also um, a great thing. I had a uh, physician tell me about telehealth saying it's great but by the time they finish fussing with all the apps and software and figuring out how to use it and use the interface of the particular telehealth platform they're presenting what we call white coat hypertension. They have high blood pressure only during the visit because they had to go through so much nonsense that was flustering them. And again, we're talking about people that are not necessarily the most tech savvy, but they're all worked up now. So that's just one. It was kind of an amusing look at how it can create high blood pressure in someone who might not have it otherwise. Megan, what do you see in the smart home sector that is health related that you think really works right now, if anything? Definitely seeing some new interesting things in products and services with with home health fitness. Peloton, everyone knows they have a bike and a treadmill, but they recently introduced two new products, a, a new bike and a new treadmill. The bike is a little bit higher end and the treadmill is a little bit more affordable. Also, Apple just announced Apple Fitness Plus, right? That $10 per month um, subscription service. It's really, really a new thing that we just covered, but uh, it has 10 different types of workouts. My colleague, Vanessa, uh, I think tested it out recently and, and thought it was pretty great. I think that we now have set the table with COVID for consumers to be more persistently interested in how they're doing and their wellness. And that the smart home, that basket of devices that we envision to take over one day, is going to become also a basket of passive sensors. We know, as, as yours and other coverage have called out, Every light switch that has got a sensor is also an activity sensor, not just a light sensor. Or every smart speaker has a microphone that maybe can listen to my tone of voice and tell how I'm doing as well. I think there's kind of like a, almost like a shadow function there. Oh, absolutely. There's a ton of potential there. And we've seen, we've already seen a trend in that as well. You know, devices that, that have sensors. So maybe if you're monitoring uh, an elderly loved one remotely, you know, caregiving, that type of thing, you can use those devices for, for multiple purposes, right? It's not just, you know, a security camera is not just to monitor whether packages are delivered. They can be used internally to check in on loved ones and communicate with them, as well as sensors and other devices in our homes. Let's turn to commerce now and talk about shopping at home, shopping and or getting food delivery. It's kind of all in uh, sort of a similar basket there. And uh, and Paul, you've got a theory that I have dubbed the Hannibal Lecter effect. Uh, it's uh, your theory states that people at home not mingling don't see as many other people buying, wearing and using things that they can covet. And it took me back to that line in Silence of the Lambs where he says to Clarice, we covet what we see, Clarice. And that's very much the truth. We can't have envy of someone else's phone or clothes or shoes or water bottle if we're not out there mingling, seeing what they've got. 
Yeah, I think right now we've got envy for people's living rooms and their bookcases and uh, wallpapers. Um, but yeah, that's certainly the case, you know, so human behavior is based on uh, envy, jealousy, um, and they're powerful drivers of uh, consumer behavior. And I remember, you know, just trying this out um, when, say, like a new phone would uh, emerge and um, showing it, say, in an elevator and going, uh, what do you think of this capability to somebody I knew who didn't have that model of phone? Um, and very often it triggers, you know, the start of that buying decision. And there are many, many um, different buying decisions and triggers that we have. And like every logo, I think, is a buying decision. The sound of certain cars closing the car door or, or the sort of um, the roar of the engine um, for uh, petrol engine cars. All of those are, are triggers. So I, I firmly believe that. And we've had a huge bunch of training, all of us as a people, uh, around the world in learning how online commerce works, which may seem like a very pedestrian idea in 2020. It's like, good grief, how long has Amazon been around and Walmart.com and all the major brands selling online? But, you know, a lot of people didn't really get it until they had to get it. Uh, Jennifer, do you guys see anything in your work that tells us about the future stickiness of at-home commerce? There was already a, a great foundation for online co commerce coming into this, and most people knew how to buy, and they even had their payment information already loaded. And so it was it was easy for us to transition that behavior. I think there are some specific places in the commerce world that are new and that people have that our data shows people have tried for the very first time, things like call ahead ordering and grocery pickup or retail pickup where you're not actually going into the store. And there's a lot of convenience in that, being able to put my shopping list together online, have someone else pick it up for me at the store, and then I pick it up on the way home from work. I mean, there's actual time savings there, and we know that if you can save consumers time, that's valuable. The thing I find interesting about online shopping uh, and the big swing toward it, I think most, uh, most indications are uh, from Parks and others is that this is one of the home trends that will stick more than most, right, of the big five. Um, is that this will also result in a change in the built world. And this is not really a technology story, but we're doing pickup at curbs that have been kind of, you know, ad hoc set up at stores. They weren't built for it. Um, and it's a little bit wonky. It can be a little clunky. Uh, imagine a few years from now when stores have been rebuilt, malls have been retooled, and those pickup lines and such are part of the built infrastructure. I think that'll do two things. One, it'll make it a whole lot easier to do this kind of shopping. And two, those physical changes signal to all of us all the time, this is where we're going. This is how we shop now. So one stat, which I think is you know really fascinating, the online grocer I use say the average time spent on their website for completion of a shop is 14 minutes. So how can you compete with that 14 minutes in going to a grocery store, doing your shopping and going back home? I can barely get to the store where I am here in suburban America in 14 minutes and then do my shopping and then get back and burn a bunch of fuel, which is not trivial, in the middle. So we're not talking about a 10% or 20% improvement in efficiency. We're talking about an order of magnitude better once you warm up to it. There's a delivery charge, and people think, if I go to the store myself, I don't pay that delivery charge. Utterly irrational, because as you're saying, the delivery charge is in the wear and tear on the car, the emissions, the time spent. Let's finish up with uh, some insider uh, tips here. I uh, just want to go around the horn and ask what it was like for each of you to make the conversion to at home. If I asked you on the top of your head, what did you have to do that was... Uh, perhaps the most difficult in terms of maybe setting up a home office, 
or learning online shopping for groceries, which a lot of us still don't do, or or, or setting up new streaming accounts. It's kind of funny. I have maybe an, an an odd answer to this. I I typically work from the CNET smart home, which is itself a house um, out in the country where we test smart home products to sort of mimic a real world scenario, right? Because it's actually a home. So I'm actually quite used to working not from my home, but from a home. Um, so the transition was was fairly streamlined for me. Um, almost feel guilty saying that. I, I brought my laptop home. I have a nice little space here. Obviously, I'm testing a lot of different devices. So I'm usually the one tinkering around the house, setting up thermostats or installing doorbells. But the biggest thing for me as I get products sent to test is managing actually inventory in the space I have. So just literally the physical space that I have to, uh, to test products, right? Because sometimes I'm doing office chairs and other products that take up physical space. And then, like you mentioned earlier, actually managing uh, recycling those boxes after they arrive to me. So imagine 10 office chair boxes showing up and then trying to figure out how to get those recycled, you know. Uh, that's been probably the biggest challenge with, with my work from home. And you've got that kind of house where no two light switches match because you're trying so many of them at <laughs> one time, right? That is... Absolutely true. Yes. <laughs> Paul, what's it been like in London? How did you have to shift gears at your home to start to put your life centered there? So from an IT perspective, um, it wasn't a problem. Um, you know, people at Deloitte have been designed kind of to work anywhere um, for a long time. So that bit was easy. What's really hard is communicating using um, a 2D screen. Um, I do a lot of presenting to people in person, as you do. And what's really, really difficult is not having the feedback. So not knowing when something isn't resonating, not knowing when people are looking a little bit lost. You know, so we communicate via these video rectangles right now. And what we can see is a bit of their face. If their connection is good, then we can see a bit of their expression, but you can't see like the whole body language, which is what you really need. Um, and so, you know, that's one reason why I expect um, within a few months, as soon as it's safe to do so, most people who can do will end up going back to offices as much as they can. Jennifer, tell me about the experience that you've had setting up to do your work at home. What was uh, what was easy? What was hard? Also, maybe a unique position, but I was working mostly remotely for a few years before this year. Uh, usually four days at home, one day in the office. And I'm definitely feeling the lack of that one day in the office, which was our collaboration day. And so while the rest of my colleagues have gone remote too, it's just so difficult to really collaborate on big picture thinking and toss ideas around and get people engaged remotely. But um, the harder part was having, especially during the shutdown times, my family in the home with me and trying to work and the household patterns with kids and pets and and husband working too and just managing that and then personally really feeling the lack of travel uh, my last question to all of you is what blind spots are there out there what are we not talking about for me i think that there needs to continue to be much more focus on developing great technology for seniors the fact of the matter is new technology is designed for early adopters that tend to be higher income, younger uh, consumers who already have some tech affinity. And I do think the pandemic has really shined a spotlight on um, on seniors, on uh, the 
the ability to live at home, on the difficulties that caregivers have, and the fact that it's a, a major market, <laughs> that we have aging demographics in this country. I want smart, large appliances that really address the problems of the consumers. So I know we're a ways off, but you know, at CES in years past, we've seen the Foldy Mate and the Laundroid and devices that are really trying to address those chores that take up time that no one really wants to do. I want to see a, a truly smart, large appliance. As we've all learned, and you've all been echoing, once we bring more aspects of our life at home, home becomes a very busy place. And suddenly those chores, while we never love doing them, suddenly we absolutely just don't have time to do them. Yeah, so my suggestion for this year is uh, LiDAR. So this is a technology that's been around for decades. It's been really expensive. It's one of the enablers of self-driving cars, of robots um, in factories, and it's now available in a few smartphones. And what LiDAR does um, is it can capture depth. There are plenty of applications, say, for home decoration, uh, but there's also e-commerce, so you can measure your dimensions using LiDAR. You can create a 3D scan of yourself. You can always buy the right size of sweater or trousers, or you call them pants, I think, in the US. But, you know, you think of all those possibilities, it's fantastic. And a great benefit of that would be fewer returns. So it's good for the environment as well as, as well as being good for the bottom line. I want to thank my at-home dream team. Jennifer Kent is Senior Director of Parks Associates. Paul Lee is Global Head of Research for Tech, Media and Telecom at Deloitte in London. And my colleague Megan Wallerton, Senior Editor at the CNET Smart Home Center in Louisville, Kentucky. We've experienced a tsunami of new living at home via technology. But tsunamis don't just come in. They also go out. One of the big questions of 21 will be how far and how fast this one does and what's revealed when that happens.